You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Okay, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, everyone here uh, at ODI, welcome. Um, also, welcome the online viewers. Uh, welcome to the meeting on economic transformation and new approach to uh, inclusive growth. Uh, my name is Dirk Tevelde, and, and I'm uh, head of the International Economic Development Group here at ODI, um, and I'm also the director of the Supporting Economic Transformation Program, uh, which is uh, organizing this, um, this meeting. Um, let us remind ourselves a bit about why economic transformation is such an important topic. Um, it is easy to go to uh, low-income countries. Um, uh, I went in the, to Tanzania and Mozambique only two or three weeks ago and to find the need for economic transformation um, that it's very, very high. Um, if you think about the manufacturing sector, for example, in Tanzania and in Mozambique, there's only 1% to 3% of the labor force is employed by the manufacturing sector. Um, there's also a need for productivity change across all sectors. But you don't have to go to low-income countries at this time to be convinced of the concept of economic transformation. Let's just think about OECD countries, developed countries. Uh, think about the UK or the US, um, where economic transformation and job creation is also a, a top uh, issue on the agenda. We probably would be in a very, very different political situation uh, if uh, governments over the last 20, 30 years had paid more attention to economic transformation, job creation, for example, in North England or in inland US. Uh, thinking about economic transformation and job creation for regions that have been left behind, um, <coughs> that's also important. But of course, the topic of today is more about uh, developing countries, in particular low-income countries. And for low-income countries, there we also find that there has been perhaps growth, um, a particular type of growth, but it hasn't really uh, transformed economies. So there's definitely a need to think about a different type of growth um, that transforms e econo economies and creates jobs. Uh, we're, of course, pleased that uh, uh, developing countries themselves are taking this more seriously and thinking about industrialization. And also, uh, from, from our end here, but our donors are also taking this increasingly um, uh, as an important issue. Think about the, the latest uh, IDA 18 uh, settlement, uh, the, the World Bank's lending uh, arm, which also has sort of a placeholder in the strategies for uh, economic transformation and job creation. But this requires perhaps a new approach and thinking much more around how things can be done practically, because we know that governments have been trying to transform their economies, but in many low-income countries, the structures are still the same now as they were uh, 40, 50 years ago. So we'll discuss today economic transformation uh, with an excellent panel today. Um, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll hear uh, in a minute um, uh, uh, from two authors who have co-authored a paper that we're launching today, and hope you've been able to pick up a copy. Uh, you can also download it from the internet, of course. Um, and we'll, we'll, we'll hear from Maggie McMillan, uh, who is a, a, a professor at Tooth University and also at IFPRI, MBER, uh, but has also helped with, with, uh, with the paper. 
um, and uh, she's done a lot of work on, on, on transformation, economic transformation in, uh, in Africa in particular, including papers with, with Danny Roderick, uh, with others, but also now with, uh, with a range of other important papers. And then we'll hear from, uh, from David Booth, um, uh, who is a principal research fellow here at the Overseas Development Institute, to talk about the political economy of economic transformation, because we think that that's what we need to um, bring to the table as well, marrying the economics and the political economy. Um, we'll hear today also uh, from, uh, we have two regional perspectives. Um, so one is from uh, Ed Brown, who has joined us from Ghana. He's from the Africa Center for Economic Transformation, who have been pioneering uh, approach uh, to, to economic transformation for a number of years already. Um, and he'll, he'll be able to talk us on that, but also to think about how embedded the concept is in, uh, in, in Africa or not. Um, and we're also joined by uh, Devapriya Bhattacharya, who is a distinguished fellow at the Center for Policy Dialogue in Bangladesh, who has also led the Southern Voice um, a common, a coordination of, uh, of think tanks, thinking about the sustainable development goals where economic transformation also plays an important role. Um, and we also hear uh, from uh, uh, two representatives of two donors, um, two extraordinary women who have championed the cause of uh, economic transformation and job creation in their own, uh, in their own way. Uh, Louise Fox has been working on uh, economic transformation and, and, and inclusion, uh, the gender aspects uh, of, uh, of transformation in particular, um, but, but she's also uh, become uh, the chief economist of USAID. Uh, and we'd also like to hear from her uh, perspective uh, on that. And uh, we're also joined by, uh, by Mel uh, Bahenan, who is Deputy Director um, of the, the Growth and Resilience Department, uh, under whose watch um, DFID have produced a new uh, economic development strategy that's been launched, uh, the first ever economic development strategy that's been launched uh, in January, and that's been uh, championing ideas around transformation, the link with inclusion, and a range of issues around development finance and, uh, and trade as well. Um, and of course, we want to hear from you as well, and that's also very important. Um, and we'll be coming to you. Uh, in fact, maybe I should just come to you now, uh, thinking about economic transformation. Who, for whom is it, an, uh, is it a new concept or for whom is it not a new concept? If you've heard about economic transformation, can you put your finger up? So there's quite a lot of you. Who hasn't heard about economic transformation before the meeting? Right, so the concept as, as it is isn't new. So we need to hear from the panel what is now new about this paper, what is new in the paper. Um, and uh, to start off with, uh, we'll, we'll start with Melinda Bohannon. Um, uh, and um, she will be discussing um, a bit about the concept, uh, how she looks at the concept of transformation, uh, also what, how DFID looks at the concept of transformation, how embedded it is, and what, what the tools are to, 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 to support economic transformation. We'll go to her first. Um, uh, I should also say that our program is supported by the Department for International Development, so we're very grateful for that. But also, she needs to leave at 1 o'clock, I think, uh, because you've got an important ministerial engagement. Um, so you'll be excused at 1 o'clock. But uh, shall we just start um, um, by you? Um, over to you, Melinda. Thanks so much, Dirk. Okay, um, thank you. That was a great introduction. And thanks um, to everyone. It's great to be here and to help you launch um, this paper and take part in, I think, what will be a really exciting discussion about what this means to Dirk, your point about new approaches to development. Um, and certainly for DFID, I think the economic development strategy, which, as Dirk mentioned, we launched in January, is an important point of departure for us 
in terms of what we mean by the role of economic growth for development. So I have a few headline points to make, which I'll make briefly because I'm sure you want to hear directly from the authors and also debate that. And the, f the first point to make, um, and this shouldn't be a surprise to anyone in the room or listening, economic transformation and economic growth are central to poverty eradication. You know, fundamentally, this is, this is a, the key element um, in our view, alongside inclusion of achieving the global goals, and particularly Global Goal 1 on eradicating poverty in 2030. Um, the second point to make, and this is really about DFID's journey with ODI, we work really closely on the definition of economic transformation. And we very much share the analysis that this is both about increasing the productivity within sectors, but also about shifting labour from low to high productivity sectors, um, increasing incomes, increasing the benefits to work in the process. And that is something that we think is absolutely fundamental now as we go forward and that we try to set out our approach, our definition, but also our approach in the economic development strategy to give a sort of sense practically of what donors can actually do. But firstly, quickly to answer the question, how did we arrive um, at our own sense of the extent to which DFID's work and portfolio um, is transformational and there we um, and I'm sure as many of you know and probably work with us on it uh, took forward inclusive growth diagnostics across all of our business units so across all of our country programs across all of our central business units to really try to get to the bottom of what is it if we look at this concept of economic transformation that we currently don't observe happening in country which we can call the binding constraints to growth and from that, we extrapolated a small number of priority areas that we think that DFID can make an important contribution to, both through its bilateral programs, but also through the way in which we work with multilaterals, but also increasingly through the way in which we work with businesses and on trade. So having, having done that analysis, I think we really felt we strongly did our homework, and again, working closely with ODI, um, to apply that definition to think about how we could use and structure and take forward the diagnostics in a robust way. Um, the economic development strategy so therefore sets out both the analytical underpinnings of our approach, but also then gives a sense practically of what that means in terms of our response. And there, I think, you know, you, many of you will have read it, but I just wanted to highlight a few of the sector shifts, quote unquote, sector shifts that we want to underpin with the economic development strategy. Um, and talk a little bit about how our work going forward will evolve in those sectors. Um, firstly, clearly, we want to do much more on the manufacturing piece in the countries in which we work. We already are engaged strongly in Ethiopia and have been working closely there with the government on its industrial policy and approach to manufacturing. But through um, a new programme, which we launched slightly before the strategy, actually, but was very much part of that story, um, called Invest Africa, we want to take that now further in the East Africa region, um, particularly to Uganda and Rwanda, but also potentially to Tanzania and Kenya. So really building on the approach that we already have in those countries, but making it much more of a sector-wide approach to manufacturing, thinking about not only how you support the, the, the infrastructure for manufacturing, but also really how you can get business-to-business -business engagement, that deal orientation, that business-matching piece right through both your bilateral programs, but also about the influence and the relationships that you hold. Um, we also intend to move forward um, with a more coherent portfolio around urbanization, infrastructure, and energy. Um, 
we have three focus countries for that, um, uh, which are both in Africa and South Asia, so, so in Burma, in Uganda, and, and Zambia, where we will be um, thinking about ways in which we can support the urbanization piece, but also making sure that that's linked to over, you know, a, an integrated um, approach to urban planning, an integrated approach to spatial planning. So really trying to get to the heart of what is it going to take for governments to make sure that they are linking their, um, their, the places where people live, to transport to places where people work, and also on from that to how goods are exported to market. So really trying to get that integrated planning piece right as a means of getting more investment into high productivity sectors. Um, quickly then also, we have had a strong offer in DFID for a while on financial sector deepening and capital market deepening. We'll be extending that as a way for businesses, particularly productive businesses, to get better access to capital at better rates. We want to move forward in our agriculture portfolio, which, as many of you know, is already very large, specifically more into agribusiness and agribusiness investing, particularly helping small agribusinesses link more to smallholders and integrate them into global value chains. So there are a series of sectors which the economic development strategy sets out. I think it's also important to make the point that transformation isn't only about investment in these sectors, but if we really are to achieve inclusive transformation, we want to make sure that we're tackling the barriers <coughs> to growth being broad-based. Um, and those are formal and structural, but they're also informal. Um, and part of our work through the strategy, or amplified through the strategy, is on women's economic empowerment in particular, and ways in which we can work with firms to think about where women are in their supply chains, think about how to raise the productivity of jobs where women are primarily employed. Um, that's key for us, we think, in making sure that this overall transformation story impacts on inclusion also. Um, and I think the final point to say um, in the context of the economic transformation piece is that clearly, um, and this is very much referenced, a strong theme in the paper which we're discussing today, um, the role of exports, the role of international trade, um, the role of investment and investing um, is absolutely critical to making sure that the high productivity sectors are the ones that are um, able to grow. The UK, as we leave the European Union, will be looking again at how we structure the trade relationships we have with many countries. Um, one of the big challenges, one of the big priorities within that for DFID is making sure that Africa in particular and South Asia are in focus. So we want to make sure that we have a rules of origin system, um, an approach to trade, which absolutely enables these countries to export more, to attract more investment and to trade their way out of poverty. And that, I think, is the new element that the, that the economic development strategy also tries to underline in terms of what our approach is going to be going forward on transformation. So I think all of that is sort of to wrap up where DFID currently is. I mean, very, very clear, as Dirk said, that it's absolutely fundamental that we have a shared definition and understanding of what economic transformation is. Um, and DFID and USAID and the best will in the world won't be able to deliver this alone. So not only do we need that shared definition, but we also need that shared action plan. And I really look forward to hearing about your discussions today on what that shared action plan and definition should be and how we go forward. So with that, thank you very much. Okay, no, thank you very much. That's been very helpful um, to, to discuss the economic development uh, strategy and the, and the rollout of that and, and how uh, economic transformation is, uh, is, take, is, is having a central place in, uh, in it. Great. Um, let's let's now move to the presentation of David first on the political economy. So this assumes that we we have already we have agreed what economic transformation is uh, in exactly the 
the, the way that Melinda described that, and that we've said something about how to measure it. Um, one of the uh, things that uh, I think is new and distinctive, uh, both about the, uh, the approach of this set program at ODI and of the, uh, the new DFID uh, uh, economic development strategy, is that it very deliberately tries to integrate the economics and the political economy, or the, the economics and the political science. Um, and the question about what that means, I think the meaning of, of that isn't, is, is, is not self-evident, and uh, many people will make sort of false assumptions about what it means. Um, this is my sort of quick summary of what it, what it means to really integrate the economics and the political economy. Um, first of all, we make very limited prior assumptions about the institutional needs of economic transformation. Um, we limit it, uh, in fact, to th th those four things or something, something like that. Um, I mean, interestingly, this, this is a sort of subset of the, of, the, of the three Cs, which are a prominent part of uh, World Development Report uh, 2017. These are the immediate things that, that uh, uh, affect the, uh, the viability of industrial policies and uh, um, economic development uh, strategies, and they have to do with uh, uh, issues of, uh, of, of collective action, uh, issues of, of commitments. Uh, whether or not the uh, the le learning costs of of firms uh, um, are, are sufficiently accommodated, not very political things in the conventional sense. <clears throat> Second thing that's meant is that the the, the conflicts between those uh, sort of basic requirements for successful economic transformation and the way politics and business typically works in a developing country are major, and substantial, and can't be avoided and need to be recognised. Um, importantly, though, when I say the way politics and business works, I, I, I'm, I'm talking about what the best political science studies say about the way politics works in Uganda or Peru or, 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 or Mongolia, um, and, and, and not what uh, um, uh, politicians mean when they make sort of normative postures about what's wrong with politics in developing countries. Third thing it means is recognizing that in spite of these um, very uh, severe conflicts between the workings of politics and the needs of economic transformation, countries uh, have succeeded in achieving uh, more or less substantial amounts of economic transformation, not principally in Africa, but in Asia uh, for sure. Um, and they've done that by uh, means that are A, very diverse, uh, and, and B, not very easy to predict in advance. They have involved the key role for particular bits of government, which have, uh, have, have been able to become islands of effectiveness. It's involved a lot of learning by doing. Um, the most famous examples of this are from, from China, but I think all successful industrial processes uh, um, uh, have, have involved that. Um, new forms of public-private uh, uh, collaboration, which you would not have predicted on the basis of the hard uh, political economy analysis, and uh, the, a role for new ideas or better ideas or less old-fashioned economics um, in all cases. And therefore, because that's what it means to integrate political economy analysis and, 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 and economic analysis, um, one could conclude that there are sort of two essentials uh, that should guide uh, uh, any external support to um, economic transformation uh, processes. One is uh, um, that you are supporting things which are technically sound, which 
reflect the, the, the best that economic analysis uh, uh, can say about the situation, drawing on whatever these, the available data, and that's the kind of thing that Maggie's paper is about. Um, and secondly, it needs to be politically smart. Uh, the, the, the delivery of the support needs to be politically smart, and I'll, I'll try to say what each of those two things uh, uh, means with an illustration from the paper. Uh, this, uh, is, this is an attempt to sort of cross-tabulate um, the, the different uh, uh, types of public actions that can be uh, important in, uh, in supporting uh, processes of economic transformation. In the top row, uh, supporting the structural change uh, that Melinda referred to, the, the, the bottom row uh, referring to the within-sector um, uh, shifts from low-productivity activities to high-productivity activities. And then the other distinctions between broadly enabling interventions and targeted interventions. Um, the paper has a, a whole section which is devoted to sort of explicating that, uh, that classification and discussing um, various things such as the, uh, um, the increasing recognition that uh, general investment climate reforms by themselves don't necessarily get you very far. Um, you have, I've just been in Rwanda, which is a spectacular performer in terms of, uh, of, of investment climate reforms, but it is not yet getting either domestic or foreign investment in manufacturing uh, on any, anything like a sufficient scale. And um, Maggie's research is, is, is uh, interesting in, in, in uh, bringing out the, the important role that needs to be played by selective interventions particularly in, 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 in situations where the data say that the productivity of, of some firms uh, in a particular sector is very much higher than the productivity of, a, of another set of firms, which creates the opportunity for actions which actually will sort of upgrade the, 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 the low performance. So that's what technically sound means. That's the place for uh, the very best economic analysis. But the event interventions also need to be politically smart about, uh, about the way they operate, which means uh, having a good, deep understanding of precisely what the political economy of the particular country uh, is so that you choose your battles and don't uh, try to take on uh, changes which are clearly not going to uh, be successful given the nature of the, of, of the political incentives. Um, there's increasingly uh, strong uh, um, arguments for focusing on problems which are recognized by a sufficient constituency of, 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 of domestic actors as problems and not focusing on problems which are only recognized as problems outside. Um, critical junctures, having the flexibility to seize an opportunity when, it's when it arises, which is, is something which has been very much uh, uh, supported by experience in some of the DFID country programs. Um, don't neglect the role of ideas. Um, a lot of the resistance to economic transformation is about vested interests, but the vested interests are bound up in many cases with old, what, I, what I would call old-fashioned economics. Um, the, in, in, in the East African region currently, the, the, the understanding of, 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 of manufacturing is heavily skewed towards the idea of domestic uh, um, substitution for imports. Um, that's one of the things that needs to be changed, and that's a, at least partly a battle of ideas and not a battle of political interests. Um, look for friends in unexpected places. There's a lot of uh, experience from a range of, uh, of areas of, of uh, 
of donor-supported uh, in interventions that suggest that you should not make the assumption that somebody who appears to have a vested interest in the status quo is not capable of moving. You may actually find, for very odd and unpredictable reasons, um, there, is a there is a possibility to learn, which means you need to set up your whole thing, your whole intervention, with a great capacity to learn from what comes out of the woodwork as change begins to happen. Good. So that's what I think it means, that's integrating exactly. economics <laughs> and political economy. So that's a strong message, and, and, and choose your battles. Uh, be, be selective there, that's important. Great, thank you very much uh, for doing that one first. Um, um, in the paper, it's still the, the right order. We still have the, the order about defining economic transformation and, uh, and thinking about uh, how it can be measured first. So let's, let's now move to, to Maggie um, to discuss uh, that item. Okay. Um, thank you very much, Dirk, for inviting me today. And uh, thanks, David, for the comments. And Mel, your description of what DFID is doing was music to my ears. I wish, we could I, wish I could say we have the same thing in the United States. We don't even have a director of USAID at the moment. Um, <clears throat> so uh, what is economic transformation? So broadly speaking, it's the process of um, bridging the productivity gap between poor countries and rich countries. Um, <clears throat> those produ productivity gaps are enormous. And why is productivity Im important? It's output per worker. So basically, so basically, it's how rich or poor you are. Um, and so we typically focus on two mechanisms for closing these gaps. <clears throat> the first is um, raising within sector productivity growth, so um, raising productivity growth in manufacturing or agriculture. That can happen either through innovation, uh, enhanced technologies, or it can happen by some of the le less productive firms being pushed out of the sector and more productive firms entering. Um, the other way in which uh, productivity gaps can be closed is through structural change, and that is, um, that, that is the process of moving resources and, and, and labor in particular out of less productive activities into more productive activities. That can happen also within a sector, but we have tended to talk about that happening across sectors. So the most common example is moving workers out of low productivity agriculture and into manufacturing. How do we measure economic transformation? Um, so we have um, both production-based and trade-based analytical uh, measures of, of, of uh, economic transformation. So we typically, look, we typically look at output per worker by sector and changes in employment shares across sectors. Um, we also have trade-based analytical measures uh, to compute um, movement towards uh, more productive um, kinds of trade. Uh, and so those measures are measures of trade competitiveness and trade diversification. So what is the recent evidence on production-based measures of economic transformation? That's hard. I don't know. It's not that easy for you guys to see this. But I will summarize the main points. So this is from a recent paper. Um, with Roderick and Dow, uh, it's the recent growth boom in developing countries, a structural change perspective. And what we do is we look at, um, uh, we look at countries uh, before and after growth accelerated. So 
there was a period of slow to no growth, and then growth accelerated in the country. And we aggregate this information across countries. And so um, what the, the dark vertical lines are growth from uh, within sector productivity growth in agriculture. The, the cross-hatched lines are um, within sector growth in productivity growth in other sectors, sectors other than agriculture, and then the rest is growth from structural change. So um, the reason growth from structural change is so important for poor countries is because the productivity gaps across sectors tend to be huge, and you can get relatively large payoffs in a short period of time um, through structural change, whereas within sector productivity growth tends to be more difficult and harder over time, or to, and to take longer time. So um, basically, the, the results from this analysis um, show you that structural change has played a very important role in economic growth in Africa and in other low-income countries. So structural change has been the primary driver of growth in Africa and other poor, uh, other low-income countries. Um, that's not true for the middle-income countries. In the middle-income countries, the primary driver, have uh, driver of growth has been within sector productivity growth. So that result is not that surprising because we expect structural change, the, the benefits to be larger in poor countries. What's what's newer and a little worrying is that the within sector productivity growth in Africa and other low-income countries in sectors outside agriculture, so in manufacturing or trade or services, that productivity growth has been low to non-existent. That's a big problem. Um, why is it a big problem? Um, I can just take Tanzania as an example. You have the employment share in agriculture falling. You have the employment share in manufacturing and services rising, but in mostly informal activities. Okay, so if you keep going that way, the growth from structural change will peter out too. Everybody will be even at a very low level of productivity. What that means is that what you need, it, what we need, it, it can't, the focus cannot just be structural change. The focus has to be investing in high productivity activities. Or, um, and so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to talk to you about uh, two strategies that I've been working on for the same, pro same problem, two different approaches. It's just that I happen to be doing the project on FDI in Ethiopia and the project on small businesses in Tanzania. But I, c I will do the project on FDI in Tanzania, and I could do this project on small businesses in Ethiopia. So I'm just talking now about my own research that, by the way, has been all funded by DFID through PEDL or IGC. So the Ethiopia case, um, manufacture so manufacturing firms in the formal sector in Ethiopia are relatively unproductive. I have a, I have a quote in the paper, I think it's like, I don't remember if it's 25 or 50 times, the, the productivity of private formal manufacturing firms, and some of them are big, is very low. So the government of Ethiopia has made attracting FDI a, a, a key pillar of its strategy, of its, of its industrial policy. With the explicit, <laughs> it's explicitly written in the development plan that there are expectations of knowledge spillovers from FDI to domestic firms to improve productivity in domestic firms. Um, and so the research question in that case is how successful has 
FDI being at raising domestic firm productivity. Let me jump to the results for Ethiopia. So we find direct, so we worked with the Ethiopian government, uh, with the Central Statistical Agency and the Ethiopian Development Research Institute. We wrote a technology transfer module that was administered by the Central Statistical Agency. We asked firms, what kinds of relationships do you have with um, foreign firms? And we found a lot of evidence of uh, domestic firms hiring workers who had previously worked for foreign firms. We found a lot of evidence of domestic firms producing inputs for foreign firms and foreign firms selling inputs to domestic firms. So we found a lot of direct evidence of linkages. Then we use this, um, then we test for the, uh, the impact of FDI, uh, the opening of a large FDI plant on the, on the outcomes for domestic firms, and we do it in a way that we isolate locations. So we look at a location and we, we, we look before and after a large FDI plant opened in that location, and we look at the impact on domestic firms. And we find that the t total factor productivity of domestic firms increased by 16%, domestic firm in entry increased by 53%, and domestic firms' profits rise by 33%. Excuse me, what period? Uh, it's all different periods. Uh, the peri 60% in a year is one thing, 16% in 16 years is something different. No, no, it's a, it's a three-year period. Three, thank you. Yeah, so um, the research design is so that it, the, you have to have all the firms three years before and three years after, and you have to have only one Greenfield FDI plant opening there. So the events all happen in different time periods around the country, but we, you know, synchronize it. So it's minus three and plus three. Um, and, uh, but they are large effects. But um, actually, when we compare to some, effect, some, some research in the, um, <laughs> well, when you compare to some research in the United St States that found like a 4% increase in TFP, we find four times that, and we're not that surprised by that because the gaps here are so much bigger. So, so that's Ethiopia. Then, the, then there's another thing that's equally important. In Tanzania, um, the, we've done a, some research to show that 88% um, of the employment growth in Tanzania between 2002 and 2014 was in the private informal sector. And that is um, most of the, um, so, that, so mostly in small, largely informal firms. So we, um, so we ask ourselves, what do these firms look like? What is the potential for these firms to generate productivity growth and employment? And what do we find? Uh, we find in Tanzania that there's enormous productive, productive heterogeneity among these micro, small, and medium-sized enter enterprises. So we used, there's a nationally representative survey of micro, small, and medium-sized enterprises that was administered by the Financial Sector Deepening Trust. And it's a unique data set because it, it covers 5 million uh, employees and a little over uh, 3 million businesses. And it has a lot of information. The survey must be like 100 pages long. Um, but enough information for us to, to calculate productivity, for example. And we find that there is this enormous heterogeneity, um, but we, uh, we, we identify characteristics of the most productive firms, and we, say, we uh, find that the, of the most productive firms, the owner would not quit the job for a full-time salary job. So these are not subsistence entrepreneurs. The firm hire paid workers, and the owners have formal <coughs> bank accounts. So we, from that, 
research, which is purely descriptive, our takeaway is that there's significant potential for raising pr productivity and employment growth in small firms by targeting uh, financial and other products at these firms. And I don't have a slide for this, but um, we're working with uh, the National Microfinance Bank of Tanzania, which is a huge private bank, and um, the Small Industries Development Organization in Tanzania, uh, which is has offices in 25 regions across Tanzania, and we're working to develop a loan product that will be targeted at the most productive businesses using the information from CEDO. So my role as a researcher and my, my colleague over there, Jed, who spent the whole summer going around all regions of Tanzania, um, our role as researchers is to bring together the information. But the nice thing about the project is that it's the private bank that's designing the, the loan product. They know what they're doing. They've been in the business for years. But we're integrating that with the government organization that is designated for um, raising productivity among these small businesses. So I think that's all I have to say. <laughs> good, good, good. Thank you. That's, that, that's brilliant. Um, so we've got a couple of building blocks now. Um, so we've got building blocks about economic transformation, um, how it's been measured sort of within and in between sector. Uh, that's really important. And, you, and within that, there's also uh, the importance of firm productivity. Uh, and looking at firms is, is, is also very important. So looking at productivity change across the board is important. We heard from David that it's also <coughs> important to think about the right types of policies, uh, that it's not just investment climate is, uh, on its own isn't enough, even more targeted policies that are, are important. That's your point as well, Maggie. And we have heard that, that it's also important to think about the political economy of, uh, uh, of thinking, uh, moving ahead uh, and thinking about what, what needs to be done next. I think you need to leave, isn't it? Yeah. Thank you very much for for uh, for, for attending. So I think the um, um, I mean we, we, we need to we have three uh, discussions uh, to talk about a concept. But is there anything to you that you want to say now? Basically, that because I know that it's going to be three discussions. Is there anything that you want to bring up and say uh, I agree or I don't agree or it's not clear? Does anybody? Yes. Maybe we can have a microphone to uh, to the gentleman over here. If there is a microphone. Thank you. Sorry about bringing in the audience at this stage, but I think it's a, it might be a long sit otherwise for the audience here, the gentleman here. Um, thank you. My name is Tom Sanderson from the Foreign Office. I'm, I'd love to hear more about inclusive growth mm -hmm. and how we can avoid elite capture and the inequalities that perhaps the next yep. group of countries up, the middle-income countries, are seem to suffer a lot, and even our own country. Okay, anybody else wants to say something? Sheila? Maybe. Oh, yeah. And then we go. Uh, thank you, Sheila Page, ODI. Uh, really, following up uh, Derek's introduction, which drew parallels between OECD and developing countries, whether you've looked at the Bank of England research that Andy Haldane spoke about earlier this week, precisely about the problem of increasing productivity within sectors rather than between sectors in the UK economy, uh, where he put a lot of emphasis, as I understood it, I've only looked at the speech, not the report, on information and the, well, the, the Lake Wobegon problem that all companies believe that they're above average mm -hmm. in productivity, so it's quite hard to c convince them that they need to change. Okay, good. So we've got two questions um, already there. Um, I think the issue about inclusion, I think that's what, it, what we, what we might uh, come to next anyway, I think. Um, so I'd like to invite sort of Louise uh, 
to make her comments uh, today. And I think that uh, it would be interesting to hear from you how you look at the concept of, of economic transformation and particularly how you look at, uh, at, uh, at inclusion. We'll come back to you in a minute. Uh, um, and, uh, and also the perspective from USAID. Okay, thanks, Dirk, and um, nice to see everyone. <clears throat> I have to give a shout-out to my old friend Ed Brown in Ghana. I think that we knew each other since we were children, practically. Uh, we'll not go into how long ago that was, Ed. Um, so um, let me just say I'm not speaking on behalf of uh, USAID today, on behalf of my government. Uh, I am speaking on behalf of myself. Um, but I will say that um, it is a tenant of uh, a core tenant of, of USAID also, in addition as well as in DFID, <clears throat> that we aim to support inclusive growth. We agree with many of the key points uh, that uh, uh, Melinda made about economic transformation being the only way to eradicate poverty, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so what I would say in my comments is that um, <clears throat> There's been a lot of focus on the Asia path um, because Asia path achieved economic transformation, sustained growth, and inclusion. Um, and it's, so it's a good path. And I'm not sure there's enough focus on sort of the um, uh, preceding periods before the big growth and what were sort of the key enablers that were already in place. Now, uh, and I think it's important to understand that because then we have to ask for the late industrializers if those enablers aren't in place, if some of them aren't in place, what can we do and, and where are going to be the opportunities and what should we expect if those enablers aren't in place? So just to list out a few enablers, first of all, education, uh, the education levels of the population. Second of all, health. And there I would also highlight fertility. Um, there was a fertility decline. And education is much easier to achieve if you have a slower growth of the number of children, because then you can have need a slower growth of the number of schools and whatever. It has an effect on, and you can uh, spend more public uh, expenditures on, on infrastructure. You have more public savings, and you have more private savings in households. That's what is the basis of the so-called demographic dividend. I would also say that in agriculture, the baseline levels of productivity were higher. Um, uh, there was also productivity improvements during this period as well, but the Green Revolution technology was, you know, uh, uh, in place or coming into place. And also another key enabler is la was land reform uh, and the land tenure system. Um, and so there, was, uh, there were family farms that had secure access to land and therefore could make investments that led to increased agricultural productivity and savings that allowed them to then um, have one member or some members of the family migrate to urban areas and work in the new uh, urban industries. We call that multi-locational households. And then the flow of funds back and forth uh, also helped to make uh, growth quite inclusive. And I would say a final point is a more deliberate urbanization strategy. Now, lower fertility helps that a lot. The rural-urban migration in Africa and Asia, you know, today, uh, compared to Asia, say, 30 years ago, uh, are about the same. The difference in Africa is that the fertility rates also in urban areas have been high. And so urbanization is happening faster uh, when countries are poorer. And so you have this problem of high-cost cities in Africa, which you did not have and do not have um, in Asia today. So um, 
our different colleague isn't here, but I'm also pleased to hear that they're uh, including infrastructure and urbanization as part of their economic uh, development and transformation plan. Um, and so, um, and then I think the point you made, David, that they did not have the perfect investment climate is, of course, key. They had a few things in place and a few key enablers they were able to build on. And so, um, and, and one might argue that they had a better external environment um, in terms of nobody was sort of discussing whether Thailand was a currency manipulator, right? Um, so that is also a kind of, kind of helpful. And so I think our questions when we look at countries like <coughs> Africa is what to do without all the enablers, what enablers are there, and what to expect. So in a way, my answer to you, Maggie, about the different pattern of Africa and Asia is, yeah, that's what to expect, uh, a different pattern. And, and, and how are, uh, and so what I would say is that if we're, um, structural economic transformation in, in Sub-Saharan Africa has to include rural and agricultural transformation as well as urban and non-agricultural uh, transformation. Now, that's not an unusual idea. I mean, let's talk about the work of Timmer back in the 80s and even before that, Johnston Malur and the contribution of agriculture to economic development. That's not a new idea, but we just, we just have to make sure we can't forget it. And so from that point of view, when you ask what does USAID do to support um, economic uh, transformation, we have a bit of a different approach to budgeting and designing programs than m most other aid agencies in that money isn't allocated to the health sector. It's kind of allocated to budget lines. So it's allocated to uh, treating HIV AIDS and, and um, or it's allocated to malaria control and prevention, or it's allocated to orphan diseases, or it's allocated to um, improving the cold chain for immunization or something like It's allocated. So it, it adds up to um, nearly half of our uh, funding spent on health, but it doesn't sort of start from we're going to spend half of our funding on health and where should we spend it. Um, so that sort of, and then what happens is you have countries who look at all these funding lines and say, okay, which ones would make sense to use in our strategy in our country? Um, USAID has been heavily um, uh, pushing it toward agriculture and agriculture and rural transformation. Um, and not so much toward, it doesn't have sort of a funding line around manufacturing, but it has funding lines also about the enablers of that, including the enablers of exports, such as um, trade logistics and trade facilitation. So I think that um, uh, using sort of the, the system we have and the strengths that we can bring to it, um, USAID is also uh, ha has a focus on economic transformation in our programs. And in a way, um, I would, since I've, I've been to a couple countries now and looked at the USAID program and what others are doing, I would say maybe it complements in important ways um, things that other governments do. And of course, we at USAID spend a substantial chunk of our budget on humanitarian relief as well, as, as does, does DFID. And, um, and that's, you know, bringing into the fore the question of how can we get away from having to do relief all the time and how can we manage disasters so that we can move faster toward uh, transformation? Because volatility, economic volatility, uh, has not just a negative effect in one year, it has a longer-term effect on um, economic growth uh, in the successive years. So 
um, I think, you know, and Stefan Durkin and, uh, has been promoting some new, and Diffit has been promoting some new ideas about that, and I think um, we need to be moving in that space as well. Thank you. That's very helpful. I mean, this issue about economic development in, in fragile states, I think, is, 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 is a, um, an important point that is also being picked up by the economic development strategy in Diffit, I think, as well, and uh, something that we also need to test whether this concept of economic transformation can really work um, in, um, in, 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 in fragile states. Great. Um, let's move to um, our two uh, uh, participants via the video. Um, shall we first move to Ed Brown? Um, can you hear us, Ed? Good. Yes, I can hear you. Great. So we'll, I'll be yeah. very interested to hear uh, to hear from you, uh, yeah. sort of how you look at the, the concept of economic transformation and also your experiences in working with African uh, governments. Yeah. Thank you, Dirk. Louise, it's a pleasure seeing you over there. I hope I can see you soon in, in Washington. Um, yeah, uh, from asset's perspective, first of all, let me just briefly comment on this SET program because I think it's a wonderful um, development to try and really pin down what economic transformation is. And I remember about four years ago when we were beginning to work on our work on economic transformation, I think that the question that we asked is, what is economic transformation? And if you ask this question, you would get as many responses as uh, there are people in the room. It's the proverbial story of uh, the three blind men all touching different parts of the elephant and claiming that it is. But certainly, the full picture is not known. So the question that we then asked ourselves was that, what would economic transformation look like if you see one? And we therefore tried to look at the Asian experience, because I remember very well one of the basic critics of the Ghanaian development paradigm is that in the 1960s, um, Ghana was just at the same level as South Korea in terms of human resource, human capital, in terms of, I mean, Ghana had more natural endowments than South Korea. But where are we today and where is South Korea? several times over in terms of GDP and per capita income. And what we've been observing over the years is that Africa is growing, but it's not transforming, it's not creating jobs. So the type of growth that we have is not growth, I mean, it's not job creating. And that the structural composition of the economies over the last uh, 50 years since independence has not changed that much, still dominated by agriculture and in fact, in the early years of independence, manufacturing was growing, but all of a sudden, you know, uh, it started declining. And today, manufacturing sector in many African countries is adding less to GDP than it was about two decades ago. So the question was, um, you know, the issue of transformation moving beyond poverty reduction. And I see, I mean, the set program and the distinction of having the structural change and within firm and within sector change is a very strong analytical construct which would help countries to uh, really deal with the transformational issues. And I think the analysis that you've done on the political economy is also spot on. Uh, it's important to look at what, how really do you implement transformation. And the four elements of your program, uh, I, I think it's, it's, it's a good conceptual framework which should enable um, countries to move ahead and better manage their transformation agenda. 
what we did was to provide what I would call a policy tool, a measurement that would allow um, policymakers, non-technical people, to really um, measure transformation or at least assess their progress in transformation. And you remember in 2014, we came out with our flagship report on African transformation, growth with depth. And depth, the acronym depth, I mean, has five uh, components. One is diversification of production, which includes production and manufacturing and exports. It's also um, uh, export competitiveness and the whole issue of how do you access international markets and be more competitive because Domestic firms can only be sustainable if they are able to be competitive internationally. And then the issue of productivity increases. And I think under the SET program, productivity increases is the pillar. And that's what it is for us also. So productivity increases in manufacturing and in agriculture. And then, of course, technological upgrading. If you look at the African countries, we did some analysis of industries in the 60s, 80s, and then 2000. And you see that even some of them in the early years were actually having medium to high technology, but over the years, this has dropped to low technology inputs. So technology is very, very important in, 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 um, in, in, in transformation. And of course, uh, all this would culminate in improving human well-being. So the depth construct is a simple um, um, framework which allows policymakers to be able to measure transformation if if they really want to push and drive the transformation. So the issues of diversification, which you've been talking about within firms and across uh, sectors and so on, is very, very important. And the use of technologies is particularly important. But the point I wanted to make, you know, I, I think in terms of implementing or supporting transformation, the political economy analysis is, is, is very important. Uh, how do you really, um, you know, break the the stronghold of many of in, in many of these countries, you know, of the of the of the elite of the political elite and the political settlements. How do you manage that process? And I think what seems to be happening in some countries, for example, in Ghana today, um, with the new government in power, would basically ouster the other government because they've recognized that you know the the government was very corrupt. It wasn't delivering on its agenda and so on. But one element of the program that the new government is pushing is to put categorical emphasis on certain areas that they feel are critical. So, for example, they're saying infrastructure, but not just infrastructure, but railways. You know, in the colonial period, the country had a railway system, and it's no longer existing. In fact, railways do not exist anymore in Ghana, so they need to revitalize that. How do you do that? So you, you bring a champion, you actually define what you need to do, identify a czar or a champion who would really drive that agenda across sectors. And they're having the same thing for many other areas that they want to push. And I think that itself is it's a good strategic approach to really dealing with the vested interests that sometimes impede progress in the areas, particularly infrastructure where the procurement processes are very corrupt and you could have government financing of investment that would take over 20 years to build a 100-kilometer road. So these are some of the challenges that is, is being faced. And I think the analysis that uh, SET is doing on the political economy is very important. One thing that we are trying to look at is how do you create 
a community of countries that identify with the transformation agenda and to learn from each other and to identify specific areas that they can together begin to benchmark and understand each other. For example, Rwanda is doing very well in the area of uh, public finance management. And the lessons can be drawn from the Rwandan experience to inform the work in the other countries, particularly in public expenditure management, the, the budget process, and so on. And by bringing these countries to, together in a coalition to analyze some of the you know, nagging issues in that particular sector or subsector allows them to learn from each other. And therefore, it also puts pressure, peer pressure among them to see that, you know, one country is doing it better than the other and therefore the others can learn and they, and, and, and they begin to move along that line. So we are with ODI looking at a variety of uh, areas, particularly uh, we've identified eight areas which we think, what we call the pathways to transformation. We have the pathways and the drivers to transformation. Uh, pathways like light manufacturing, which we're talking about the drivers like, uh, you know, um, public finance management, resource mobilization and management, the whole area of agricultural modernization. And Louise uh, just mentioned the importance of agriculture as being the linchpin to drive transformation. If you look at the um, Asian experience, uh, it was more for uh, um, uh, farm holders that really increased productivity and therefore propelled the shift of labor from, from uh, low productive agriculture to high productivity and then to manufacturing. So the, these are very fundamental. And what, one of the things that we're trying to do is that we're coming up this year with what we call the next report on, I mean, on economic transformation, focusing on modernizing agriculture as one of the drivers to transformation. I would end here for the moment. Okay, I thank you very much. That's, been, that's very helpful and also very interesting to hear about your concepts of economic transformation, which is really important and practical, and also sort of explaining a bit about what you're doing in the coming year um, around, uh, around transformation and the issue about coalitions around economic transformation sounds very, very important. Okay, um, so the last uh, discussant, um, Deb, you have been waiting patiently. Uh, over to you, how, you look, how do you look at the concept of transformation? And uh, uh, well, do, do let us know how it's going with uh, uh, country governments. Oh, thank you, Dirk William. I, I am very pleased to see many of my friends in the room and I'd like to uh, compliment them and and also share my warm wishes. And I really regret that cannot be there today. I would have enjoyed more listening to all of you face to face. But till now I had been enriching myself with the presentations, the comments and the observations. They have been very, very interesting. I mean interesting, really interesting. Um, so let me come to the issues. My grandmother told me never say more than three points. They're not going to remember the fourth one, even if it is in ODI. So I will just I will go with my three points, but I will put a couple of more under each of them. Uh, so the first one is the conceptual part. The second one is the, the measurement and the empirics, the trends, and the third one, the policy package. And, and I have read with great interest uh, the approach paper, uh, the, the policy briefs, the, uh, the uh, PowerPoints, and have listened very attentively to the presenter. So I will skip all those and just take, for grant, uh, take it for granted that I have said all the right things and complimented you for taking the research one step forward. 
Now, come to the uh, on the issue. You have asked me in the mail that how this concept is embraced in our part of the world. In our part of the world, in Asia, particularly in low middle income countries and the least developed countries, this concept has been embraced very warmly. Uh, the the point of reference are four. Uh, it was three are traditional and fourth one is the, the new one. The first one is the number of LDCs in the region that are graduating. Uh, Bangladesh, Nepal, Bhutan, Maldives has already done. Uh, hopefully Cambodia, Laos will come in. And what we have understood that graduating from the LDC group is what is called a milestone, but not the winning post. So how do you move from the milestone another new milestone that is structural transformation that is usually understood like that i think the second point which comes uh, the point of reference is uh, is the middle income country what we call the middle income trap that even if you graduate from the ldcs even if you become a low middle income country even to higher middle income country you may still get stuck in the middle so called middle income trap is the structural transformation a solution to that we try to look at the Latin American countries who are stuck there for the decades together and whether we can learn anything from there. I think the third point of reference is the new global international agenda, the SDGs. SDGs have brought in the so-called, uh, not so-called, I mean it, uh, the, the ambitious uh, transformative agenda, which is supposed to be inclusive, integrated, and universal. So what that transformative part will link with the transform the structural transformation is another interesting component for us. And the fourth point is the, the new global economic environment, how it relates to the structural transformation pursuit. Of course, there are debates whether uh, the, the structural transformation is a uh, goal, is an aspirational point, or it is a process. All these issues are very much there. I just, on commenting on your uh, uh, conceptual construct, I have two basic points here. First, it seems it is being taken that structural transformation is unidirectional, and there is only one uniform way of measuring it and looking at it. It gives that feeling. So, But we also know the structural transformation, there can be negative transformation as well. The deindustrialization was a negative structural transformation. I think a clarity on that regard, regarding so-called positive transformation, I think Donny Rodriguez and others have written on it, is, will be useful. And at the same time, it will be useful to also maybe uh, it also to look at the plurality, pluralism in terms of the structural transformation instead of leaving some scope for policy flexibilities or measurement flexibility in this regard. The second part of it is uh, that will structural transformation automatically or necessarily lead to inclusive growth? We have a feeling not necessarily, because the, the, your program says a new approach to inclusive growth is structural transformation. We have a bit of a doubt on that particular thing. You may achieve structural transformation, but you may not achieve that one. For us, the measure is that even if you increase the labor part in, in or share of labor, even in the formal sector, we have seen the empirical evidence shows that the share of labor in the GDPs, the share of wages in the GDP, has not risen in many cases. Coming to the two other observations on the empirics and the measurement. Uh, one is that this changes in the sectoral composition, um, I'm summarizing very briefly, so 
please don't challenge me on the empirics at this moment. I don't have time for that, but uh, the figures. But the issue is that you, we, we have seen changes in the changes in the sectoral composition of the GDP, which has not been paralleled by the changes in the composition of the labor in, on a pro rata basis, even on a significant way. So the, the labor changes in the labor composition have turned out to be much more stickier than the sectoral changes in many ways. So the, the one may not lead to the others. The number two is that we have seen the productivity, labor productivity growth in our country and elsewhere, which has not led to higher employment, uh, uh, share of employment in these cases. The labor and the technology has a big role to play over here. So there are technologies now which create zero employment in many cases. And now with the social compliance and many other issues together, even in the garment sectors, we are observing that. The last point is that we have found strong relationship between structural transformation and human development indicators. It has been alluded to earlier over here. What is important is not only the number of people graduating, but the qualifications are supported by competencies because the quality of education is major issue as we, as we see over here as we move on that. Let me come on the policy part. The policy part as, it's, as it stands now, help me if I am wrong on reading this, that the, the, the emphasis on production-based and trade-based, but for the recent experiences that exclusive dependence on trade, external trade, has not been helpful for creating a resilient economy. You see, resilience and sustainability may not be the same thing over here, and we have not. So the new industrial policy, which many of us we are talking about, walking on two legs, both on the domestic-oriented uh, markets, uh, domestic market-oriented industry, taking advantage of the rise of the new middle class, and at the same time, be careful about the world, which is where we see the breakdown of the multilateralism and the rise of the new protectionism. So the, the overemphasis on the trade part is possibly, it needs to be revisited under the new circumstances as it goes. And my last point on that particular issue is that, uh, on the policy is that enabler has been discussed what I don't see is much on even by two by two matrix, which has been presented here, which is all very good in terms of the, the I agree on that, but they need to be encapsulated with a macroeconomic policy environment. It plays a critical role, both public expenditure, uh, fiscal incentives, monetary policy issues. There has been a mention about the exchange rate, but I think that is something uh, which is over there. Let me conclude by saying uh, one word about the SDGs and as it goes. You see, goal number six, which relates to the uh, the goal number six, which um, uh, goal number eight, which relates to the investment, sustainable economic growth, employment, and decent work. So that will bring us a new challenge in terms of we are talking about formal sector growth, and formal sector growth that doesn't necessarily mean decent work. So how do you really capture the new demands on the employment quality, the decent work over there? And we'll see on that. And, and goal number nine, which is about the resilient infrastructure, sustainable industrialization, which will all lead to, again, on sustainable production issues, which relates to the energy consumptions and other issues over there. So I like the idea of creating an elegant, you know, smart um, measurement in that way. But in real life, things are quite complex. And so how we relate to the rest of the world with our policies over there will be something which I look forward to. Thank you for giving it the time. Okay.
Thank you very much, Dad. That's very, that's Thank very you very much, um, So uh, a lot of issues have been, been highlighted, and uh, you've all been waiting patiently uh, here as well. Um, uh, we've discussed issues around measurement. Uh, we've discussed issues around, um, uh, and commenters were around, the extent to which economic transformation leads to inclusive growth. Uh, we've discussed issues around political economy, uh, the importance of that, um, about policies, uh, exporting, the importance of exporting for transformation. Um, so lots of issues we, we can discuss. So I'd like to bring in the audience, uh, and uh, maybe if you could just introduce yourself, uh, say who you, who you are, and then make a, uh, make a point or, or, or a specific question to one of the panels, and then at some point I'd, I'd like to bring the panel back in. Um, shall, we, shall we go here first? Does anybody like to go here uh, on, at this end? Otherwise, we'll go... Uh, well, there's, there's a gentleman over there. Well, thank you very much for the um, for the discussion. It was really interesting. Um, you could also you say who you are? Sorry, ah, sorry. I'm Jean Billon from the the charity JOS, a French NGO working on uh, access to energy in developing countries. Mm -hmm. um, panelists have mentioned many enablers uh, for economic transformation, and I was uh, I didn't really hear the role of uh, energy as a key enabler for economic transformation and inclu inclusive growth. And uh, I think energy is recognized. Uh, and especially the productive uses of energy uh, to raise the productivity, raise um, incomes from uh, governments, uh, and also deliver some um, life-changing products and services to uh, vulnerable population. So my question is, um, yeah, for the donors and also yeah for everyone to, what is the strategy to to deliver um, uh, access to energy, especially for productive uses? in developing countries, uh, knowing that the centralized um, <coughs> um, paradigm has, um, has not been working uh, so far. So what is uh, the strategy in terms of decentralized uh, uh, energy for productive uses? Okay, good. Um, then we let's go to the lady over here. Um, I'm Anna Thomas from ActionAid uh, NGO. Um, th this is a point that um, I believe you were maybe going to address, uh, Louise. Uh, how do inclusive growth is only inclusive um, if women are included as well as men? How does anybody propose ensuring that um, growth is gender inclusive under economic transformation strategies? And perhaps starting by how would you propose measuring gender inclusivity? Mm -hmm. Good. Um, uh, lady at the back. Yeah, if somebody could turn the heat down, that would be really good. Um, good afternoon. Good point, I'm Naichi from the University of Westminster, and I'm from South Africa. Um, I just want to start just with a quick comment before I get to my question. Um, the session was very interesting, um, as well as I think the definitions in particular. Um, particularly because, I mean, in South Africa over the past few years, um, economic um, transformation has been very high on the agenda. And I, for the longest time, it feels like we just keep changing the words and playing around with terminology. I mean, we've looked at inclusive um, economic development and growth, where we looked at vulnerable groups, women, um, youth, and people with disabilities, focusing on initiatives such as, such as affirmative action, black economic empowerment, and the likes. So now, um, currently, what we are focusing on is radical economic transformation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> so with us, we've just added radical 
um, really. Um, so, but still, the country is experiencing so much inequality. And more than anything, similar to the gentleman in Ghana, um, jobless growth. So my question really is that as much as we've been focusing, now we're focusing on radical economic transformation, your manufacturing, black industrialization, how does a country such as South Africa move away from having these grand policies and strategies and actually making sure that these are implemented and that on the ground um, the economy is really transformed? Okay, very good. Maybe uh, let's, let's take one more. Uh, gentlemen. Thank you very much. I'm Max Mendeparra from ODI. I think it was uh, uh, highlighted the role of manufacturing in the economic transformation process, also the, the importance of agriculture as well. My, my question is specific of the role of services, um, whether you see a role for services in the economic transformation, and specifically if there is, what would be the issues to consider? Yeah, okay, that's, that's one question, one more question. I'll just take a number of questions, and then, with your permission, we, 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 we finish at 10 past two. We also start at 10 minutes later, so. Um. Yep. Hi there, uh, Charlie Swarbrick from DWP. Thank you very much for a really interesting um, uh, presentation. Uh, so my question really is about what your position is, I guess, as the ODI and, and the approach paper on, uh, on land grabs, uh, specifically in uh, agriculture in Africa, and do you see that as a a threat or, or an opportunity. Um, obviously, there's a grey line between FDI and, and, and land grabs. Um, so is it a case of that it's a good thing because uh, you know technology could be transferred to the local community um, or as sort of a threat because it's taking away a portion of the land that could be sort of productive to the, to the host country? Okay. Other, uh, uh, Keith Palmer here. Keith Palmer from a chairman of AgDevCo, which is an agricultural development organization focused on Africa. Really just two uh, questions about things which seem to me to be very important, but which have been barely mentioned in the presentation so far. Um, first, uh, it was mentioned rightly by Ed Brown that um, 20 years ago, there was a huge amount of manufacturing in Africa, particularly there was a giant textile industry. Mm -hmm. It's all been eliminated. So I, I'm interested to know what people think the lessons are to learn about why it went away and whether something different needs, therefore, to be done to bring it back again. Uh, this isn't a unidimensional uni, uh, thing, uh, transformation. It's been declining, and it's a case of whether it can be brought back again. And the other thing which has um, uh, hardly been mentioned is uh, many of those small and medium-sized enterprises with high productivity, they can't get any funding, and there's a huge problem with uh, capital. And as you move up the scale into serious capital for manufacturing, you need serious capital. Mm -hmm. A complete absence, I would say, in Africa are for funding for anybody other than foreign investors. So whether or not something else needs to be done different to facilitate the flow of capital into... into um, uh, potentially large businesses that currently are are not tiny but are, have got some capability but not the wherewithal to mobilize funding. Good. Uh, just in front of you, the final one. Hi, um, I'm Rebecca Naden from the ODI, Head of Risk and Resilience. Um, I just have a question about um, risk exposure actually. So 
As the move to um, more from from low prod productivity to sort of more high value um, with sophisticated value chains, as quoted here, and um, how to consider um, something like you know, climate risk into that, because um, as you move to more um, sophisticated value chains, that type of exposure increases. I think Thailand, the floods there in Bangkok in 2011 is a good example of that. Um, you had uh, companies such as Toyota, um, Samsung and others who had invested very heavily um, with, with manufacturing bases there. Um, but obviously they were, they were shut down for, for several months because of the floods and then there was no provision within, um, within the Thailand system for those people who were employed in those companies to be able to claim um, welfare assistance. So there needs to be consideration of social security protection um, as well um, as part of that. Good. Okay. Um, so I noted down 10 points for the, for the panel. Um, so let's try and distribute it a bit. Uh, I think the, uh, the lady from South Africa, I think, was, was discussing about what is new uh, and, and, and that it doesn't remain words. And I think maybe, David, you can sort of discuss that a bit about sort of how can we make sure that things are implemented and not stay grand-scale policies. As such, uh, maybe you want to just uh, also you want to start with that. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 notorious. I think that uh, that economic transformation and industrial policy have been used uh, in 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 a completely loose and undisciplined way in the South African political system for a long time. So I mean, it's not necessarily the case that everybody who talks about economic transformation is is is, is doing hot air, but I mean, I think it is the case that in South Africa that uh, this, this issue is, was, has been handled in an extremely loose way. Um, how, how to make it serious, I mean, the, the, there are big questions about how and when the political system of South Africa will move t in a direction which is more favorable to, uh, to uh, economic uh, policy for transformation. I don't think I, I mean, you, you are much better placed to have the answers to that uh, than I do. But to revert to some of the things I said earlier, I think uh, um, we can't wait for the political system to become transformed. Uh, we therefore have to think about smart things which uh, can be very targeted on uh, problems that are appreciated within the current political system and on which you might make some headway. Mm -hmm. Modest objectives, I think. Okay. Um, there's one point about uh, inclusion uh, and, 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 uh, and female empowerment and jobs and transformation. Louise. Okay. Um, so um, how to measure, that's an easier part that I've thought about. And I would say I measure whether um, <coughs> economic transformation is bringing women more opportunities uh, in <coughs> economic space as well as in, um, in social space and in their life. Um, I've read a paper that argues you can't really uh, separate economic empowerment from social empowerment or psychological empowerment that uh, they go together. It's in the mind and it's in, in, and it's in what the mind um, allows you to imagine and then what you do. Um, so, um, but I don't measure it by declining inequality particularly 
because that um, is a little bit more complicated. Uh, it can move in different ways on different dimensions at different points in time, so that's more difficult. So now what, what, what makes it gender inclusive? Well, as I said, some of these enabling conditions are really underestimated. Uh, women's education, um, and, and of course, not just, you know, uh, going to school, but actually learning something. Um, health and fertility control, uh, which allows women to have less housework, or do less housework, because they have smaller uh, families, and it allows a choice around that. Um, and land titles for women, uh, which also can give a choice of doing less farming and moving more hours into the non-farm economy. I was just uh, um, <clears throat> at a conference up in Oxford earlier in the week, and a new paper was presented that shows in Ghana that land titling is allowing women to spend less time on the farm because they don't have to guard their farm against intruders, and more time in the non-farm economy where they're making more money, and also it's resolving some of the underemployment problems in, um, uh, in rural areas. Um, <clears throat> Uh, mobility. You can't move out of the house if you're not safe. And if the norms of the society uh, sanction, um, uh, uh, provide strong sanctions against mobility, um, that is a constraint. Now, how do norms change? Well, sometimes norms change with economic change. Sometimes they don't. Um, one can look at um, Bangladesh, where the role of the garment industry uh, changed norms, especially for young women. It was now okay to go to the city and work in the factory. Uh, now, that has not extended to a number of higher paying sectors, interestingly enough. It also hasn't extended to owning the factory or running the factory yet. Um, but, uh, but it's some change. Um, but we can't expect economic change to change the norms. And we need to understand that, for example, in places like Egypt, there's been a lot of economic change but not much change of the norms. So occupations where you see um, women that have developed uh, as Egypt's economy has transformed, where you would see normally see women in them in other countries, you don't see them in Egypt because the norms uh, haven't changed. Now, um, uh, obviously, if the demand curve for labor is moving out rapidly, um, that helps to change the norms if there's a labor shortage. Now, if the labor force is growing more slowly because fertility has declined, then the supply is lower, the demand curve is moving out rapidly, um, and suddenly um, you can't just ask for men to work in your uh, business. You have, you have no choice. So the role of fertility is quite uh, uh, complicated. Um, okay, I think that's, uh, oh, oh, decent work and social protection. You know, I think that um, in some countries, in many countries now, in many low-income countries now and, and lower-income, middle-income countries, uh, decent work as defined by the, the, uh, some people uh, is an aspirational goal. And um, a better work is something that puts food on the table. And there's been a, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about the, f the, the life of women in the factories in Bangladesh, but there's been a lot of research that it's better than their other choices before the factories came. That doesn't mean factories should be unsafe and burned down. Um, but I think we need to understand that we're having um, incremental progress. And if we raise the bar too high, 
we're going to restrict it for a few. Um, so I, I, I also think um, I also think that's important. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you, um, um, Maggie. There are uh, some issues around the role of services and what inclusion. And there was a question that came through in my iPad by Estella Ariada, uh, who is an independent trade and development consultant. She would like to ask how feasible is it to focus on productivity growth in manufacturing, particularly in landlocked Africa, in light of the lack of competitiveness, availability of cheap imports, high population growth, and un unemployment. So Ethiopia might be a good uh, question. Where is uh, she from? Um, I don't know where she's from. There's another question from <coughs> Anupam Kana, who we also know, yes. independent advisor based in New Delhi, who would like to ask a panel what elements or developments in the present era make it more easy or more difficult to achieve structural change. But maybe you just can focus on one or two of these um, questions briefly. So to Estella, um, you can't change being landlocked, but you can change everything else that you talked about. And Rwanda is a great example of a country that's achieved productivity in manufacturing. It's attracting foreign direct investment. Let me just say, um, somebody, somebody dissed import substitution, uh, manufacturing for, uh, as an import substitution, but I'm all for it. <laughs> um, if you see Tanzania's manufacturing sector, they're, ma they're manufacturing a whole lot of processed food products, plastic items, and all of Tanzania's exports, most of Tanzania's exports are going to the region. Okay, that's not true about Ethiopia. E most of Ethiopia's exports are going to Europe and the United States. So they're very different and models. The states. And they're very different models. And um, I, I just think that Africa still, most African countries still import so much that there's huge scope for trade within the continent. I would like to hear what Ed Brown has to say about that. But I, I see that as huge potential. And you know, railways and better infrastructure and so forth will, will, be, will be helpful in that regard. As far as inclusive growth, I wanted to answer from the beginning. But um, that's why I think this, so let me just say about South Africa that I think South Africa is a whole different kettle of fish, and I would love to talk to you afterwards, and I don't know that much about South Africa, except what everybody else knows, but for the countries in Sub-Saharan Africa, and, and, uh, and, and I, I, I'm, much of what I'm gonna say comes from my experience in Tanzania, but I believe it's true in other countries as well. You have huge amounts of small businesses, self-employment, and uh, whenever I talk about the Tanzania work, like, I could write like 10 pages of about why it's so important for these domestic businesses to grow and take hold. It's the future middle class of Africa. I mean, you can't just have everybody poor and a few rich guys at the top. It won't work, right? So um, I think support to the micro, small, medium-sized enterprises is hugely important, and I don't think it's been done in the right way. So that's why I think this thing of targeting is so important, and hopefully they, the ones that do eventually make it can hire the ones that don't want to be running a business. And about services, it's played a role already in inclusive, uh, in structural change, uh, because average productivity in services sectors is higher than average productivity in agriculture, so a, a lot of the job growth in Tanzania has been in, serv in the services sector. The question is how to make the services more productive. Okay, thank you. Ed, Ed Brown, uh, there was a question about uh, the manufacturing sector in Africa, in particular the textiles uh, industry, uh, why that collapsed in, uh, in, in African countries, what we can learn from that. Yeah, I, I think, uh, I mean, two things. I mean, on, in the manufacturing uh, I mean, sector, 
if you look at what happened in the early 60s, it was mainly import substitution run by the state. And, and the role of the private sector was very marginal. And therefore, over time, as these state-run companies were, were inefficient, they were not upgrading the equipment, uh, the competition from outside and the dumping from East Asia basically obliterated them. And in fact, uh, in Ghana, at a point, there were about 50,000 employed in the textile and garment industry, and now it's less than 3,000. You know, so the value add to uh, GDP of manufacturing has been extremely low. In fact, it's been declining, and efforts are now being made to bring it up. So the issue there is how do you I mean, ramp up manufacturing, um, shifting labor from agriculture to manufacturing? How do you do that in, in a situation where you have this demographic bulge with high unemployment, um, and even, even university graduates are, are, I mean, are, not, are not getting jobs? And I think the experiences of a few countries in the recent past, Ethiopia, Senegal, and, um, and Rwanda, particularly in the area of textiles and garments, you know, are interesting lessons that can be drawn upon uh, to really crank up uh, I mean, the manufacturing, bringing in FDI and supporting the manufacturing, I mean, the textile and garment industry in, in those countries. Uh, and in the whole area of light manufacturing, you could talk about component assembly, you can talk about wood and and furniture, these are areas where the potentials are there. These are pathways that if countries focus on where their natural endowments are, they could begin to build up the capabilities in those areas. But I, I just wanted to comment briefly on the, on the trade and regional integration issue. I think uh, here, this is one of the challenges that many of the African countries are going to face as they move in their transformation path. We have, you have about 15 countries that are totally landlocked and they are not in fact uh, countries that can survive on their own with, with, without actually integrating with the other countries in the region. So regional integration and trade is very, very important. Today, intra-African trade is less about 10% of total trade in Africa. And there are efforts now to really, really, really move on that, on that level. But whether or not you're talking about inter-African trade or not, the issue there is that are the firms and the industries that you are developing, are they going to be competitive? So com competitiveness is very key. And at least for the low-income countries, perhaps for the middle-income, lower-middle-income low, low, lower countries, we could talk about the uh, middle-income trap. Uh, but for the low-income countries, I think the challenge there is that they need to focus on an export push. The export drive is very critical. It's not just you looking at foreign exchange, but it gives you a benchmark. It gives you uh, the discipline to be able to, you know, subject your industries to the same level of competitiveness that the others are. For example, we can talk about made in Ghana goods, made in Tanzania goods. But if these goods are not affordable and they are not of good quality, you are not going to be competitive and those industries will not survive. Yeah. So I think this is the, the underlying issue that I just want to raise. Uh, is there a final point you want to make before we close? No, on the trade issue, once again, uh, whether it is an issue of trade competitiveness or in an open, uh, small economy, it's a question of industrial competitiveness. So, because it is, you will have to sell your own products also within your own countries when there is an uh, open regime. This is one. 
and in the concept notes and and in the i think in the in the policy briefs i have noticed when there is a talk about the global environment it refers specifically to international support measures market access and other things i think the the issue today is no more about international support measures positive support measures it's about getting an open and rule based international trading system a wto centered one so i think we have regressed from that the uh, what was the earlier benchmark so i think this whole structural transformation concept devoid of any some kind of a linkage has to be established both to the macro policies and the global economic circumstances in order to get a more pluralistic approach towards various kinds of transformation we can think about there cannot be de transformation there can be transformation okay thank you Well, be assured that we're also working here in the UK on uh, the importance of trade policy uh, post uh, post Brexit. Uh, so uh, we definitely um, think that is, that is important. But also, of course, we're thinking also in other countries uh, at this stage as well. Good. Um, thank you ever so much for for staying with us uh, so long. Um, we uh, I think had a very uh, rich debate. Um, uh, well, first of all, around. Um, the paper has been launched. You can read about it. We've got briefings that you can look at um, and uh, and download. Um, we've heard a bit about how the concept of, uh, of transformation has been captured by uh, by um, uh, policymakers in South Asia. Uh, how as uh, asset are working with with country governments in the coming year to 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 make this a reality. Uh, we've we've heard from um, Mel Bahannon how DFID are rolling out their economic development strategy. Uh, we've also had an understanding of the of the USAID budget, thinking around how to, how how that can be used to think about transformation. We've heard about a link between transformation and in inclusion um, as well which is which is a very important topic um, so i hope you you've been informed but we also want to make sure that you you stay in touch with us uh, because i think this is a, a coalition that we need to work with in the words of ed brown i think that we need to work towards uh, transformation making that a reality and it's about uh, seizing the opportunities uh, thinking about the political economy of this um, so keep in touch uh, i would say and uh, grab grab a copy and thank you very much for coming and big applause for the panel thank you for listening for more odi live event podcasts find us on soundcloud or subscribe to the overseas development institute podcasts via itunes Thank you.